0: In this recording, we're going to be learning through an approach of Rabbi Yosef Dov to answer a question on the Rambam from a Tosefta regarding how the Rambam understands when a field of hefker that's ownerless is exempt from matnos aniyim, the gifts that are given to the poor. And as we'll see, Rabbi Yosef Dov has two articles on this issue, both of which appeared in the Hapardes Torah journal and are reprinted in Kovetz Chidushe Torah and Igros Hagrid. And the reason for the two articles, as we'll see later, is because after Rabbi Yosef Dov published his approach, he was questioned by the Chazon Ish. We'll see exactly how that happened. And then he responded. So we're going to have a very nice debate between the Chazon Ish and Rabbi Yosef Dov about a number of key issues, and specifically the issue of when the exemption of Hefker kicks in for Matnos aniyim, the gifts that are given to the poor. So in this recording, we'll go through some of the major conceptual issues raised about this halacha as well as some of the historical traditions about the Chazon Ish and Rabbi Yosef Dov's debate and what's interesting to see is that in many ways this debate is a reflection of the kinds of debates that we saw the Chazon Ish and Rab Chaim had because it's two different methods of learning and methods of analysis that are coming to different conclusions so this debate is a continuation of some of those debates and the Chazon Ish and the Soloveitchik style of analysis are conflicting. So we'll see some of the historical narratives surrounding this whole debate. Rabbi Yosef Dov begins his piece with a Tosefta in the second chapter of Peah, which the Rash quotes in his commentary on the Mishnah at the end of Peah chapter 1. And the Rash says, There is a comment in the Tosefta which nobody can explain. So this is a very difficult Tosefta. The Tosefta Tosefta says, If a convert dies and other Jews take his property. So the reason it uses the case of a convert is because any born Jew is always going to have an heir. So long as there's another Jew alive in the world, he might be their 25th cousin, but they're always going to have someone who inherits them. So a convert is the only person in the Jewish community who could theoretically die without any heirs. So the case is where a convert dies and there's no one to inherit it. So all his property is now Hefker, it's ownerless, and other Jews come and take his property. So they're taking the property from Hefker. So the Tosefta rules If someone takes produce which is still connected it's still growing in the ground so they have to take out all the gifts that are normally given to the Kohen and to the poor. So all the Meiser, the peya, everything. If someone takes produce which has already been cut down so let's say the convert cut down the produce and then someone goes ahead and takes it. So then they don't have to give any of the gifts because they're taking it from hefker and there's none of the produce gifts to the kohen or to the poor none of the meiser and peya applies to produce which has already been picked from the ground if the person takes grains which are standing so they're still growing in the ground so then then they're exempt from the three gifts which are given to the poor so if they drop something, if they forget something, and the corners, they do not have to give those three gifts to the poor, the chayib b'maisros, but they do need to give meiser to the kohen and the levi. So that's the Tosefta's rulings. Now, first of all, it's unclear what the difference between the first and the third cases are. Both of them seem to be produce that's still growing from the ground, and the Tosefta rules differently. In the first one, it said that he's obligated to give peya and meiser, so to the poor, and to the Kohen and the second time it says that he has to give miser but not Peya, not the stuff to the poor so this seems to be a contradiction so the Rash offers two possible explanations first is that the first case is not where the person acquired the produce growing in the ground it's where he actually took hold of the ground itself So maybe there, there's no exemption and he has to give all the gifts from that produce because he took the ground itself. So according to this interpretation, there are three cases. One is where the person acquires the ground with the produce. Second is where he acquires produce which is cut from the ground. And the third is where he acquires the produce which is still growing in the ground, but not the ground. So that's why there's a difference between the halachas. But this idea that taking ownership of the ground negates the whole concept of acquiring hefker and the person is fully obligated is very unclear. But either way, that's the first explanation. Then the rash suggests another option that there's a difference between whether the person acquired the produce growing in the land before it grew a third or after it grew a third. So growing a third is when it becomes obligated in my So in the first case, the person acquired the produce while it was growing before it grew a third, so that's why he's obligated in everything. And in the third case, he acquired the produce that's growing, but after it already brought a third, so that's why he's exempt from the payah, the leket, and the shechecha. So those are the two options that the rash has to differentiate between the first and the third cases. But now the rash raises... A much bigger problem because the halacha of the Tosefta at the end is that if someone acquires grains which are still growing in the land, so they're exempt from Leket, Shikha, and Peya to the poor, but they're obligated in meiser. And this flat out contradicts the ruling in the Gamarin Babakamach of Ches Ahmed Aleph, which says the exact opposite. The Gemara has a case If someone makes their vineyard ownerless so they give up ownership of the vineyard but then in the morning they pick the produce of the vineyard. So this is exactly the same case where someone took produce from a hefker field. So the Gemara rules He's obligated to give the gifts to the poor but he's exempt from meiser. So that is exactly the opposite of the Tosef which said that he's obligated in Miser and exempt from peya, and the Gemara says that he's exempt from Miser and obligated in peya. So there's a flat out contradiction. So because of this the Rash says that we have to change the text of the Tosefta and it should in fact say the opposite just like the Gemara in So it should say if someone takes standing grains in the ground he's obligated in and exempt from Miser exactly the way it says it in the Gemara. And that's the view of the Gaon as well, like the Rash, that we need to make the Tosefta and the Gemara and Babakama consistent. But the problem is that the Rambam in Hilchus Matnos Hei does not agree with this approach. The Rambam writes, If someone makes their vineyard ownerless, and then the next morning they themselves wake up and take back ownership of the produce of the vineyard, then Then they're obligated in the gifts that are given to the poor but if someone takes produce from someone else's field which was made hefker, so then they're exempt even from the gifts to the poor, so the Rambam differentiates between a person taking produce from their own field which they made hefker versus taking produce from someone else's hefker field and the Halacha of the Gemarn Babikama that one is obligated to give the gifts to the poor, only a applies. applies when someone took the produce of their own field not if they took the produce from someone else's field which was made hefker in that case they're totally exempt from everything even from the gifts to the poor so now the tosefta anyways doesn't make sense because the tosefta is talking about someone taking from the Gair's field so it's someone else's field which now became hefker and the tosefta says they're obligated in something according to the rash and the vilnigaon they're obligated to give the gifts to the poor in line with the Gemara and Babakama. But according to the Rambam, in that case they should not have to give anything because it's not their own field that they're taking the produce from. The Gemar and Babakama's Halacha is limited only to where a person takes produce from a field of Hefker, which was previously theirs. But if it was someone else's field to begin with, so then they're not obligated in anything. So how do we read the Tosefta according to the Rambam either version is not going to work. Whether the Tosefta says that they're obligated in Meiser, whether the Tosefta says that they're obligated in Peya and the gifts to the poor, according to the Rambam, neither version works because they should be totally exempt from everything. So to explain the Tosefta according to the Rambam, Rabbi Yosef Dov explains a key point in the Rambam's approach to these halachas. The Rambam in Matnos Sanim Zion writes, ha Kosadehu kol kodim if Someone cuts down their entire field before it ripens. The adayin lohivia shlish before the produce grew a third harezup So then he's exempt from peya. But once the produce grows a third, then he's obligated to give payah to leave the corners for the poor. So too with the fruits of the trees, once they grow a third, then he has to give payah. But if he picks the fruit of the trees before they grow a third, then he does not need to leave payah. So the Rambam says that the entire halacha of peya only kicks in once the produce or the fruit grow a third, but before that, there is no obligation of pay. So this seems pretty straightforward because that is the basic measurement for miser. So the obligation of miser for produce kicks in once it grows a third. So the Rambam is just telling us that it's the same measurement when it comes to peya. that the obligation of payah begins once the produce or the fruits grow a third. The problem is though that it's not that consistent when it comes to miser. So in the laws of miser, Beis, Hey, the Rambam rules that the third measurement only applies to produce and olives. Those are the species in halacha that depend on a third. So the obligation of miser kicks in once they grow a third. But fruit of the tree has a different measurement. So each species of fruit has its own measurement for when the obligation of miser begins. It does not depend on growing a third. So now there's an issue. Why is the Rambam saying that when it comes to peya, everything depends on a third, even for fruit of the tree, which is not the way it works when it comes to miser. Different fruits have different measurements for when the obligation of miser kicks in. So why does the Rambam say that when it comes to peya, the third measurement is consistent, that it applies to all species, that the obligation of peya only begins once they grow a third? Now, in the parentheses, Reb Yosef Dov makes a very crucial point because according to the Gemara, it seems that all the measurements of all the fruits are are not something different than the third measurement. They're just a way of measuring when we know that the fruit is a third of the way grown to maturity. So it's not that there's two different types of measurements. Everything depends on growing a third. Just the Gemara is giving different ways to identify when different species hit that third measurement. So according to that, there would be no question, obviously, because since everything for Meister depends on a third, so the same is true for peya as well. But Rabbi Yosef Dov believes that the Rambam does not understand it that way. And he points to the language of the Rambam in Hilchus Meiser, Bay's Hay, where the Rambam implies that the measurement for olives is a third, as well as grains, but it seems like other species are not a third. So the Rambam seems to have a different framework for this, that only grains and olives follow the third measurement, but other species have their own measurements. So now we're back to the question, if so, why when it comes to payah, does everything depend on the third. Says Rabbi Yosef Dov, there is a very fundamental difference between payah versus miser. When it comes to payah, so we're dealing with the gifts that have to be given to the poor, and that depends on the general definition in the entire halacha of the difference between a bud, something that's just beginning to ripen, versus a fruit. So it's clear in halacha that there is a difference between an unripened bud, which is going to become a fruit, but it has not yet become a fruit. And then it matures and ripens a little more. And at that point, it's considered a fruit. So that's the definition for when it's obligated to give the gifts to the poor, because once it becomes not a bud, but a fruit, so then at that point, the obligation of paya and the gifts to the poor kicks in. So the measurement for all the gifts to the poor is the difference Difference between an unripened fruit versus a ripened fruit, as opposed to miser and truma, which do not depend on the general distinction between a ripened versus an unripened fruit. Truma and miser, the Torah gives a new definition for when the obligation kicks in, even though something is already a fruit so it already ripened, it might still not be obligated in Truma and Miser until it hits the measurement of the Torah. So that's what the Torah is saying with regards to the gifts to the Kohen, that it doesn't depend on the general definition of becoming a fruit. It has to hit another milestone, which depends on each species. So each different type of fruit has a different milestone when the Torah says that Truma and Miser kicks in. And the proof for this is the language of the Rambam in Hilchus Meiser Beis Gimel, Peros She'enon Ruyim Laachila Miktonan Kegon Abosir VeChayotzebo. Fruits which are inedible before they ripen, She'enon Chayavim BeMeiser Ad Shiyigdelu ViAsu They're not obligated in Meiser until they become fit for eating. Shenem Ar Mizera HaAretz MiPri HaEitz Ad Shiyihy A Because the Torah describes it as a fruit, so it has to be something which is edible, like a fruit. V'Chenat Fuva Kitniyos. Same applies to the grains because the Torah describes it as kol zar zarecha, the produce of your land. So until it's produce that's fit for eating, it's not obligated in The zuhi onas hamaisros. That is the season of maaser. That's when the obligation of maaser kicks in. So the Rambam seems to be saying that there is a special requirement for maaser that the Torah identifies when the produce and the fruits become obligated in maaser, as opposed to the gifts to the poor which depend on the general definition of what's considered a fruit and what's considered a bud. So once it ripens into a fruit, the obligation of payah and the gifts to the poor kick in. Another proof Rabbi Yosef Dov has is from the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, of Ahmed Beyz. The Gemara says that miser on carob trees is only banan. It's not obligatory mida or so the question is why? So the standard explanation of the Rishonim is that Miser de Orisa only applies to grapes and olives. Any other species like apples and oranges is all Miser Midrabanan like carrots. So that's the standard explanation. But the Rambam disagrees with that. He holds that any Miser of all produce, whether apples, oranges, grapes, olives, it's all de Orisa. So according to the Rambam, carobs are the exception that they are not meiser do raisa only banan. And the Rambam explains the reason is lefisha einan machal rov adam because most people don't eat carobs. So that's why carobs are an exception. The only fruits that are obligated in Maiser do raisa are things that people generally eat. But carobs, which they don't generally eat, are only obligated in meiser banan, not do raisa. Now Rabbi Yosef Dov asks. That the Rambam in the laws of Matnos Aniem Beis Beis rules when it comes to Peya that caribs are obligated in Peya. And he includes caribs in a long list of species so it sounds like they're all obligated mida O Raisa. So why don't we apply the same rule that since caribs are not generally eaten, they should also be exempt from peya on a do level. It should only be drabanan. So what's the difference between the gifts to the poor versus miser? That caribs are obligated in peya, but they're exempt from miser on a do level. So again, we see this point that there is a difference between the criteria for miser versus peya. When it comes to miser, it's not enough to just be considered a food, it has to be broadly eaten. It has to be something which is generally eaten, otherwise it's not obligated in Miser de Orisa. As opposed to Paya, where the criteria is less... That so long as it's a food, even if it's not generally eaten, it's still obligated in peya de orisa. So carobs, which are a food, but they're not generally eaten, are obligated in peya de orisa, but not in miser de orisa. So again, this reinforces the overall idea that there is a difference between the criteria, the measurement for miser versus for peya, which is just the general criteria for what's considered a food. So now, based on this, Rabbi Yosef Dov returns to the original question on the Rambam. The Rambam said that Peya only kicks in once the produce or the fruits grow a third, and it's unlike Meiser where there's different measurements for different species. Says Rabbi Yosef Dov, this framework now makes full sense because the reason why someone who cuts produce before it grows a third is exempt from Peya is because that type of cutting is is not considered Kitsira in Halakha. Kitsira means reaping the produce and it's only considered reaping if the produce has grown somewhat. If someone is just cutting down very small produce that hasn't even grown a third, so that does not meet the definition of kitsira. And the proof for this is the Gemara in Menachos, Ayin Aleph, Ahmed Aleph discusses whether someone can cut down grains for the Omer sacrifice before they've grown a third. And the issue depends on whether we require kitsira for the Omer sacrifice. If it requires reaping, so then the produce has to have grown at least a third. So we see that Kitsira only applies to produce which grew a third. Now, the criteria for the Omer sacrifice and Paya are the same based on the Sifra and Parshas Emor, where it quotes the debate about cutting down grains for the Omer sacrifice before they grew a third. And it includes as part of that debate also whether the produce would be obligated in gifts to the Poor like Peya Lekan and shechecha. So we see that this is the same issue. That the view that requires kitsira for the Omer requires it also for the obligation of Peya to kick in. So that's exactly why the Rambam rules that if someone cuts down produce or fruits before they grew a third, that is not considered kitsira, and the obligation of Peya only kicks in if there's a kitsira. But if there's no reaping, if the cutting does not meet the definition, of kitsira in halacha, so then the obligation of payah and the other gifts to the poor don't kick in. So that explains why the Rambam says that the whole obligation of payah depends on the produce or the fruits growing a third. It's not that there's a problem with the produce itself, that for some reason it's not obligated in payah, it's that there's a problem with the reaping. The person who cut down this produce or picked the fruits before they grew a third did not do the type of action which requires leaving peya, so therefore there's no obligation of peya. As opposed to meiser, which depends on something totally different, it does not depend on kitsira, it depends on the produce reaching the measurement when meiser kicks in. So that depends on different species of fruits, each one has their own measurement. So now that we understand the approach of the Rambam and this key distinction between Meiser versus peya, so now Rabbi Yosef Dov very brilliantly comes back to the Tosefta that he began with and explains how the Rambam is going to read this Tosefta. So Rabbi Yosef Dov says that based on his conceptual framework, there is another difference between Meiser and peya when it comes to a field that's Hefker. Because ordinarily, the way Hefker exempts produce from Meiser is Let's say someone's produce grows a third and then they make it Hefker and then someone else picks the produce. So that produce is exempt from Meiser because after it grew a third, so it was already obligated in Meiser, it then became Hefker. Now, if the person had made it Hefker before it grew a third, and then someone took ownership, and after that it grew a third, so obviously the second owner is obligated in Meiser because he owned the produce when it grew a third. So the exemption of Meiser because of Hefker occurs when someone makes it Hefker after it grew a third. Says Rabbi Yosef Dov, that all only applies to Meiser because as we said, once it grows a third, if it becomes Hefker, that removes the obligation of miser, and that's one of the rules of miser that the Torah gave. That only produce which is owned by someone is obligated in miser, but ownerless produce is not obligated in miser. So that's how it works when it comes to miser. But when it comes to the matnos aniyim, the gifts to the poor, so as Rabbi Yosef Dov just explained, it works totally differently. There is no inherent exemption for the produce itself. We don't say that this produce is exempted from the matnosanim or the peya, but rather the tsira, the reaping of the produce, is exempt from peya. So that exemption is going to kick in much earlier. It doesn't kick in after the produce grew a third, but even before that even before the produce grew a third, so long as it's considered a fruit, so it's not just a bud, it ripened a little bit into a fruit, even though it has not yet grown a third, if the person makes it hefker at that point, it's no longer obligated in matnosaniyim because at that point it was eligible for kitsira. If someone would cut down a little small fruit, that is considered in halacha reaping, so at that point the matnosaniyim are eligible to be given because if someone had cut it down, they would have to give peya. So if it becomes hefker after that point in the ripening process, there's no further matnosanim for this produce. So basically the exemption of matnosanim kicks in much earlier once the fruit ripens a little bit as opposed to the exemption of meiser, which only kicks in later after the produce grows a third. So now we could explain the tosefta according to the rambam The first case of the Tosefta, where he took hold of the land, refers to when he took hold of produce, which had not ripened at all. So it's just buds. It's not a fruit or a grain at all. It's just a very small little growing thing. So there, the Tosefta rules that he's obligated in everything because there's no exemption for Meiser or for peya. Neither one of them is exempt because since he took ownership of this before it grew at all, before it's considered a produce, so he's obligated in peya as well as Meiser. The third case of the Tosefta, of Hichzik Bakama, is talking about after the produce ripened. So it's now considered a fruit, but it hasn't grown a third yet. So if he takes ownership of it at that point, he is obligated in Miser because the exemption of Miser doesn't kick in unless it's Hefger after it grew a third, whereas this produce is still before it grew a third, so it's obligated in Miser, but he's exempt from Matnos Aniyam because the exemption for that kicks in as soon as the produce becomes a fruit. So this produce, which became hefker, is exempt from Matnos Aniyam. So the Rambam can fit in with the original original version of the Tosefta not like what the Rosh changed it to but according to the Rambam we can preserve the original version that the person is obligated in Paya but not in Miser and that does not contradict the Gemaran and Babakama because that's talking about someone who took their own produce back their own field became Hefker so there they're obligated in Matno not in Miser whereas the case of the Tosefta is talking about where he took someone else's field. So theoretically he should be exempt from everything but in that case the Hefker happened before the produce grew a third. So that's why he's not exempt from Meiser even though he is still exempt from Matnos So this is Rabbi Yosef Dov's very brilliant interpretation of the Rambam's distinction between Meiser and peya, and how that helps explain this very difficult Tosefta according to the Rambam. So now again, Reb Moshe Soloveitchik published this article in the name of his son in 1931 in the HaPardes Torah Journal out of Chicago. So it was a Torah journal for American Rabbanim and Reb Moshe included this piece from his son probably trying to build up his name a little bit because he was a young man at that point and he was looking for a job and soon he would come to America to be the rabbi in Boston. So Reb Moshe was probably trying to promote his son and get his name out there by publishing these brilliant Torah insights. So he published this piece in the Journal. Now, this piece set off a big debate about this topic. In the Knessas Yisrael Torah Journal, which was published in Vilna by Reb Moshe Karelitz, who was a brother of the Chazon Ish, so in a volume in 1932, a short while after this original article in HaPardes, in volume 10, Simen Kuf Yud, there was a response to Reb Yosef Dov's approach, written by Reb Shlomo Cohen. Now, Reb Shlomo Cohen became well known as the author of a multi-volume important biography of the Chazon Ish called Pe'er Hador. So Reb Shlomo Cohen was very close with the Chazon Ish and it's known that this piece that Reb Shlomo Cohen published in the Chazon Ish's Brothers Torah Journal really came from the Chazon Ish. So the Chazon Ish liked to be anonymous. He published his farm originally anonymously and he would write a lot under pseudonyms. So here also he had one of his closest Associates, Reb Shlomo Cohen, publish it under his own name, but it's basically the Chazon Ish's response to Reb Yosef Dov. Now, in the Sefer Orchus Rabenu about the stipler in Chelek Hay on page 161, he quotes a bunch of pseudonyms that the Chazon Ish used to publish in the Knesset Yisrael journal. And then he records an interesting historical tradition from Reb Chaim Kanievsky, who told him in the name of his father, the Stipler, who was a brother-in-law of the Chazon Ish, that the reason the Chazon Ish felt strongly about disagreeing with Reb Yosef Dov's approach was due to politics. Because Reb Moshe Soloveitchik was involved with Mizrahi, the religious Zionists, and the Chazon Ish was adamantly against that. So the Chazon Ish wanted to undermine Reb Moshe Soloveitchik and his son, Reb Yosef Dove, who was young at the time, but eventually he became a leading figure in Mizrahi. So the Chazon Ish wanted to undermine Reb Moshe Salovechik's brilliant insight in the name of his son by disagreeing with it. So this is an interesting historical tradition. I'm not sure how much you need it. Because as we saw when we studied Chidusha Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi, there were some very serious differences, not politically, but in terms of learning style between the Chazon Ish and Rab Chaim, and that continued with Rab Velvel and Rab Yosef Dov, so it makes sense that the Chazon Ish would have disagreed on a purely analytic level with some of Rab Yosef Dov's approach. But this historical tradition is interesting because it does highlight a major problem that someone like the Chazon Ish would have had, that you have these tremendous, Tremendous towering Talmidei Chachamim Who come from the heart of Rab Chaim's base Medrash His son Reb Moshe and his grandson Reb Yosef Dov who are coming up with Unbelievably brilliant Chidushai Torah And they espouse a Political world view which is very different Than the Chazon Ish. So it really Highlights the drama surrounding A lot of these political debates That these Gedolei Yisrael had Either way whether that was the Historical motivation for the Chazon Ish Or not there is a very important Debate between Rabbi Yosef Dov and the Chazon Ish over the issue of when the exemption for matnosanim kicks in. So, does making produce hefker exempt it from matnosanim? only after it grew a third, like Meiser, or even beforehand. Rabbi Yosef Dov is saying a very original and new halachic idea that if someone makes the produce hefker, even before it grows a third, it's still exempt from matnos aniyim. So we're going to have a debate between Rabbi Yosef Dov and the Chazon Ish about this point. And we'll see at the end of the whole discussion some of Rabbi Yosef Dov's own historical reactions to the debate. So now we're going to go through Reb Shlomo Koh Article, which really comes from the Chazon Ish disagreeing with Rabbi Yosef Dov, but I'm not going to go through each and every point, just the major points which disagree with the overall perspective of Rabbi Yosef Dov. First of all, Rabbi Yosef Dov's analysis concludes that the Rash and the Rambam have different versions of the Tosefta. So in the Rash's, the Tosefta says that the person is exempt from Miser and obligated in Matnos Aniyim, whereas according to the Rambam, it says the opposite. Because the case is where the produce was Hefker before it grew a third, so it's exempt from Matnos but obligated in meiser. So Reb Shlomo Cohen questions this because he points out that the version of the Rosh and the Vilna Gaon also appears in the Yerushalmi. So if we defend the other version of the Tosefta, so now we have a question with the Yerushalmi. So he basically believes that the correct version of the Tosefta has to be the Rosh and the Vilna Gaons, and there is no way to defend the original printed version of the Toseftas. Now, now the second point is a very key debate. We saw that Rabbi Yosef Dov understands that the different measurements for the onas ha when the obligation of miser begins, are not the same as growing a third. That's how he understands the Rambam, that he's saying that there's a different measurement for each species of fruits, and that's not just a way of identifying when it grows a third. So that's the basis for Rabbi Yosef Dov's question, why when it comes to peya, does everything depend on a third? third, which is different than Meiser. Now, Reb Shlomo Cohen disagrees with this point, and he says that even the Rambam agrees with the simple understanding of this issue, that all of the different measurements for the different species of fruits, so let's say the measurement for apples and for dates, is just a way of measuring a third. In other words, there is no other measurements when it comes to Meiser, everything depends on a third. Now, the phrase the Rambam uses when it comes to olives is that olives depend. Depend on a third. So Rabbi Yosef Dov said, "It sounds like other species don't depend on growing a third. Says Rabbi Shlomo Cohen, "That's because olives are a little more complicated. So the Rambam had to point out that olives too depend on growing a third. But even the Rambam would agree that the only measurement for miser is when the produce grows a third. So that obviously collapses the whole distinction Rabbi Yosef Dov is making between peya and miser. because, according to this perspective, there is no real fundamental difference." Between them, the main measurement for everything is always once it grows a third. Then there's an obligation of peyah and an obligation of miser. But it's not that peyah depends on kitsira which is not inherently in the fruit. So basically, Rabbi Yosef Dov's conceptual framework. Falls apart based on this perspective. Now, Reb Yosef Dove's other proof was from Caribs, where the Rambam seems to say that Peya is a Doorisa, even though Miser is only Durah Banan. So again, Reb Shlomo Cohen disagrees with this, and he says that even though the Rambam includes Caribs in the list of species that are obligated in Peya, it doesn't mean it's Doorisa. It could be it's Dura-Banan. The Rambam's just quoting the list from the Mishnah, and he's not making clear which ones are Doorisa and which which ones are drabanan. For that, he's relying on what he already told us in Hilchus Meiser that carobs are only banan. So there is no difference between peya and Meiser when it comes to a carob tree, it's both drabanan. Now, this is a classic debate between the Chazon Ish and Rab Chaim, and we've seen a good number of examples of this exact sort of debate when we learn through Chidush Rabbi Nochaim Halevi with the Chazon Ish's marginal critiques. So this is a standard debate. The Salavachics take the language of the Rambam much more literally than the Chazon Ish. So Rabbi Yosef Dov is reading into the Rambam that the obligation of payah for carob trees is da'oraisa because the Rambam didn't say otherwise. And the Chazon Ish is saying that we can take it a little less literally. The Rambam is quoting the language of the Mishnah and he already told us that halacha elsewhere so, he doesn't need to keep repeating it. The next point is that Rabbi Yosef Dov said that if someone cuts down produce which hasn't grown a third, that's not considered kitsira, and that's why there's no obligation of paya, Even though the produce itself is inherently obligated in paya, because it's already produce, it's ripened into a fruit, but since it doesn't meet the criteria for kitsira, so the obligation of paya doesn't kick in. So, first, Rabbi Shlomo Cohen wonders logically if the produce is inherently obligated in paya why should it not be considered kitsira? how can you say that it's not considered reaping when you're cutting down produce which otherwise would be obligated in payah? So what makes this not reaping? But then he asks that the Rambam himself talks about cases where someone cuts down produce which has not grown a third and it does affect the payah. So that seems to go against Rabbi Yosef Dov's approach. And then his final question on Rabbi Yosef Dov is that his reading of the Tosefta seems very forced. The language of the Tosefta is bakarka if someone takes the land or bakama, if someone takes the grains that are standing in the land. So according to Rabbi Yosef Dov, the first case refers to taking ownership of produce which hasn't ripened at all and the next phrase refers to taking ownership of produce that's ripened but hasn't grown a third. Says Rabbi Shlomo Cohen, how are we possibly supposed to know that? That's not the normal language of the Mishnah or the Tosefta to describe produce in those stages of ripening. So how on earth are we supposed to understand this when the Tosefta uses language like he took the land or he took the grain standing in the land? How are we supposed to understand at what point in the growth it is? Why didn't the Tosefta just say it clearly? So this is a strong question on Rabbi Yosef Dov, as brilliant theoretically as his insight is, but it doesn't seem to fit in very simply to the language of the Tosefta, And again, this is a classic debate between Rab Chaim and the Chazon Ish. Sometimes the Chazon Ish will ask on Rab Chaim that as brilliant as the framework and the insight is, but the simple language of the original text does not seem to reflect that. So now we're left with a question from the Tosefta on the Rambam. The Rambam holds in the case of the Tosefta, he's exempt from everything, whereas the Tosefta says that he's obligated in Paya, according to the version of the Rash and the Vilna Gaon, which Reb Shlomo Cohen believes to be the correct version. So Reb Shlomo Cohen gives a much more technical answer. He believes that there is a debate between the Yerushalmi and the Bavli over this issue and the Rambam rules like the Bavli and against the Yerushalmi and the Tosefta. So he goes through the details of this debate and he explains what they're arguing about but I'm not going to go through all the details. It's just a few paragraphs but for our purposes this is enough that he gives a technical solution that there is a debate Eight, the Rambam contradicts the Tosefta because he's following the view of the Bavli. So that's Reb Shlomo Cohen's piece. And again, we now have a debate between Rabbi Yosef Dov versus the Chazon Ish really over the question of if someone makes their produce hefker before it grows a third, according to Rabbi Yosef Dov, so long as the produce ripened and it's considered a fruit or a food, it's exempt from Matnos Sanim even though it's obligated in Meiser. Whereas according to the the Chazon Ish, in that case, it's still obligated in Matnos Aniyim unless he makes it Hefker after it grew a third. So that's the debate between them. Now, Reb Yosef Dov responded shortly thereafter to Reb Shlomo Cohen's article critiquing his idea in another article in the Pardes Torah Journal. And the whole back and forth is very respectful. So whatever political considerations there were, they were arguing about Torah topics in a very respectful way. And Reb Yosef Dov begins by thanking Reb Shlomo Cohen for responding and studying his article. And he's grateful that his Divrei Torah are being studied and that people are taking them seriously. And he davens that that should continue for the rest of his life. So it's a very nice opening. But then Reb Yosef Dov responds to some of the points that Reb Shlomo Cohen raised. So again, I'm going to go through Reb Yosef Dov's second article, but not all of the points, just the ones that are relevant to the overall discussion that we're going through. So, first of all, Reb Shlomo Cohen argued on Reb Yosef Dov. He said that there is no measurement for Miser other than growing a third. So, Havas Shlish. Is the measurement for Miser and Peya and for everything, there is no other measurement for any species. And he said that the Rambam also agrees with that idea. So, Rabbi Yosef Dov responds and he says this idea that other species don't depend on Havas Shlish, they have their own measurements, is not something that he made up in the Rambam, it's a well established view in the Rishonim. And he quotes a very impressive list of Rishonim who understand that Miser does not. ...not all depend on Havas Shlish... ...but different species other than grains and olives depend on other measurements. So he quotes the Tosos Rid and the Ritva in Rosh Hashanah Dafyud Yud Beis, and the Pnei Yoshua explains Rashi's view along those lines. The Rash in his commentary on the Mishnah in Shviyas Beis Zion suggests something along those lines. The Chinuch in Mitzvah Shinsari Hey, the Smag in Mitzvah Sasei Kuflamid Hey. So there's a long list of Rishonim who do understand it that way. So says Rabbi Yosef Dov, what's the big deal of saying that the Rambam also understands it that way it's not like he made this up in the Rambam so there is a very strong basis to understand that the Rambam holds when it comes to Miser there are different measurements it doesn't all depend on growing a third as opposed to Peya. so that provides the basis for Rabbi Yosef Dov's whole conceptual approach that there's a fundamental difference between Matno versus Miser so this is a very fundamental debate the Chazon Ish seems to believe that there is no measurement other than Havas Shlish when it comes to Miser, and all the other measurements are just a reflection of when that species grows a third, whereas Rabbi Yosef Dov argues at length that there is a whole different way of understanding this, that there are different measurements for different species when the obligation of Miser begins. Now, Reb Shlomo Cohen disagreed with Rabbi Yosef Dov's other argument that carob trees are obligated in Peya Mida O'Raisa and Maisa only Midra Banan. And he said that they're both only Midra Banan. So Rabbi Yosef Dov responds very sharply. There's nothing to add to this because he says Rabbi Shlomo Cohen is certainly wrong. He believes very strongly that the formulation of the Rambam is clear that carob trees are obligated in Matnos in Peya Mida O'Raisa. So Rabbi Yosef Dov stands by that point. Now, likewise, he also dismisses the next point that Reb Shlomo Cohen raises. Reb Shlomo Cohen says that how could it be if the produce is considered obligated in payah that it's not considered kitsira by cutting it down? So again, Reb Yosef Adov expands on his idea, but he says that kitsira is a different criteria, even if the produce has ripened a little bit. So it's considered fruit. So there's a theoretical obligation of payah, but it's not considered kitsira to cut it down earlier before it's grown a third. So again, Rabbi Yosef Adov reiterates and expands on that point. So it's an issue of two different perspectives. They're seeing the halacha differently, but that's how Rabbi Yosef Adov understands the conceptual framework of this. Now, the final issue Rabbi Shlomo Cohen raised, which is a very strong issue, is that Rabbi Yosef Adov's insight is very clever, but it does not reflect the language of the Tosefta. Why wouldn't the Tosefta just say this clearly, and why would it use other phrases that don't generally mean that? So Reb Yosef Dove has. An interesting response to this. And he says this is not a problem with his interpretation, even according to the Rash and the Vilna Go, and it's the same problem because the commentators have to explain whether we're talking about before the produce grew a third or after. So that's a form of interpretation, but the Tosefta doesn't make it clear. So he says, why are you raising this question against my interpretation that the Tosefta doesn't state clearly what it's referring to when the same problem exists for any interpretation Interpretation that the commentators have to fill us in at which stage of growth that is talking about. So that's an interesting counter to that question. Now, at the end of the article, he includes another paragraph he sent to Hapardes explaining more fully what he means by all this. So in the original response to Reb Shlomo Cohen, he said it quickly, but then he submitted an additional paragraph explaining more fully why the same issue applies to the Rash's interpretation as well. Then Rabbi Yosef Dov points out that in his piece he's not defending or agreeing with one version of the Tosefta as opposed to the other. So Rabbi Shlomo Cohen asked why are you defending the version of the Tosefta that goes against the Yerushalmi? So Rabbi Yosef Dov says that he's not weighing in on this. There anyways exists a debate regarding the version of the Tosefta. There's the Rash's version, whereas the Shittim Kubetzis in Babakama defends the other original printed version so anyways there's two versions in the Rishonim we don't decide which one of them is correct so Rabbi Yosef Dov says he's only trying to figure out which one can fit into the Rambam's rulings but he's not siding with one over the other so it doesn't make sense to ask on his piece why is he going with one version of the Tosefta as opposed to the other whatever the defense of those two versions are is necessary even without Rabbi Yosef Dov's analysis and then he ends with his own interpretation of the Yerushalmi that Rabbi Shlomo Cohen said disagrees with the Babli. So Rabbi Yosef Dov has his own questions on Rabbi Shlomo Cohen's answer to this question to explain the Tosefta according to the Rambam. So that is Rabbi Yosef Dov's article in response to Rabbi Shlomo Cohen. They both double down on their views of this halacha and we have two very nicely articulated different halachic perspectives how to understand the Tosefta and the difference between Peya and maitha. Nicer if there is one, and when the exemption of Hefger kicks in for Matnos Sanim. Now, there's some interesting historical information brought about this whole debate in the Sefer Megid Givos Olam from Reb Michal Shurkin on page 56. So he was a student of Reb Leib Malin in the Yeshiva Beis HaTalmud and of Reb Moshe Feinstein. And he studied under Reb Yosef Dov for many years. So he records a lot of his impressions of Gidole Yisrael. So he has a few things to say about this debate. First of all, he tells that in Beis Talmud he heard from Reb Gershon Wiesenfeld, who married Reb Mendel Zax's daughter, a granddaughter of the Chafetz Chaim. So Reb Gershon told him that Reb Velvel agreed with Reb Yosef Dov in his debate against the Chazon Ish. So politics aside, even though Reb Velvel and the Chazon Ish were more similar politically against Reb Yosef Dov, but in learning style, Reb Velvel and Reb Yosef Dov were more similar. So they agreed about this issue against the Chazon Ish. Now, he tells a story that many years later, Reb Yosef Dov was giving a brilliant sheer on this topic, and there he interpreted the whole thing according to the Chazon Ish's way, not as he had explained it himself many decades earlier. So luckily for us, Rabbi Shurkin asked Reb Yosef Dov, don't you remember that you yourself interpreted the whole thing differently in the articles in HaPardes? So, Reb Yosef Adov responded, I certainly remember what I said back then. But today, when I learned through the sugya again, I came out with a different approach. So, this was one of Reb Yosef Adov's many great strengths, that he wasn't rigidly connected to how he interpreted something earlier. Each time he would learn through the Gemara, he would approach it almost like the first time he learned it, totally fresh, and he would re-examine the whole thing from the ground up. So he didn't just reuse his original ideas and just add a little bit to them, but each time he approached the Gemara in a totally new way. So that's an unbelievable approach for someone that brilliant who had so many original ideas to just keep going deeper and deeper and coming up with more and more creative ideas and he wasn't content with the ideas that he had come up with originally. So when he went through this topic at some point later on, he saw it from the perspective of the Chazon Ish. So that's the issue that came a debate between the Chazon Ish and Rabbi Yosef Dov, and that's some of the history surrounding it. Now, just a few sources for anyone that's interested further in this. First of all, Rabbi Chatskal Abramski in the Chazon Yechezkel on the second chapter of Peya, so he also raises this issue on the Rambam, and he's unable to resolve it other than changing the version of the Tosefta. So he also addresses how the Rambam would interpret this Tosefta. Now, Reb Moshe Feinstein in the Igrus Moshe at Yerodei I'm going to also addresses this whole issue. He has a long tshuva about this topic, and interestingly, in anaf ches of that tshuva, he reads one of the lines of the rash differently than both the Chazon Ish and Rabbi Yosef Dov. So in that detail of how to interpret that line, the Chazon Ish and Rabbi Yosef Dov agree, but Rab Moshe Feinstein has a totally different interpretation. And anyone that wants to see all the various commentators and way to interpret those lines of the rash, so the Machon Mishnas Reb Aaron out of Lakewood has an unbelievable edition of Meseches Paya, where they go through all the major commentators and they have unbelievable footnotes on it. So beginning on page 134 on Perak Aleph Mishna Vav, they comment extensively on the Rosh and they quote there all sorts of different sources how different commentators understand the Rash. So anyone that wants the full picture can look there. And of course they reference this debate between Reb Yosef Dov and Reb Shlomo Cohen and interestingly they raise the issue of how the Rambam's going to interpret this line in the Tosefta and the only real interpretation they quote is Rab Yosef Dov's answer. So it seems like there aren't many ways to understand the Tosefta according to the Rambam other than this approach. Now in Igros Hagrid beginning on page 130 they reprint all the material from Hapardes about this with some additional material. So first of all they have an earlier version of of the whole approach that Rabbi Yosef Dov wrote. And then they have an additional paragraph on page 140 that was originally part of Rabbi Yosef Dov's response to Rabbi Shlomo Cohen and for some reason got dropped. So anyone that's very interested in this can look at that. Now, there are a few points that they make which are worth going through briefly. First of all, they have another letter from Rabbi Yosef Dov, I assume to his father, where again he addresses this whole issue and it's after the whole debate back and forth. And he adds a few points. First of all, he says that in the Sefer Pa'asa Shulchan from Rabbi Yisrael of Shklov, who was a Talmud of the Vilna Gaon, in Hilchos Peya Simen Hay, he, he also understands the Rambam to hold that carob trees are obligated in Peya Mida O like Rabbi Yosef Dov and unlike the Chazon Ish. So that's some proof for Rabbi Yosef Dov's position, although he does quote that the Prychadash in Mayim Chaim is unsure about this point. So this issue, whether according to the Rambam, peya of carob trees is different than Myser and it's Doraisa is already an earlier issue between the Prichadash and the Pasa Sholchan. Now he also mentions two other lines in the Rishonim which support his views. First of all, the Rivid and the Rash in their commentaries on the Torah's Koanim in Parshas Emor, so they both explain that the reason why there's no peya for produce which is cut before it grows a third is because that's not considered kitsirah. That's not valid reaping in halacha. So again, that's how Rabbi Yosef Adov understood it, unlike the chazon ish. And finally, he quotes another rishon that he found to add to the list of rishonim that he provided, who hold that when it comes to miser, the fruit of the tree doesn't depend on havas, shlish, it has its own measurement. So he adds the kafter vaferach in perech chavav to that list of rishonim. So it just shows that Rabbi Yosef Dov continued to research and think about this topic. Now, there is one conceptual question which is raised by his father, Reb Moshe, in Igros Hagrid, page 134. And this is a good conceptual question because there is a jump in Rabbi Yosef Dov's analysis. He says that since cutting the produce before it grows a third is not kitzira, so that means the produce itself is inherently obligated in matnos there's nothing preventive preventing the produce from giving payah or matnosanium, but the katsira does not obligate paya. So based on this, Rabbi Yosef Dov argues that even if he makes it hefker before it grows a third, it's still exempt from matnos So that's a key shift in his piece. And his father, Rabbi Moshe, points out that it doesn't necessarily logically have to follow that way. Because it could be that since this is not a kitzira, so the produce itself is not obligated in peya. So the way to formulate it would be that only produce which could have a valid kitsira is obligated in mat but if it can't have a valid kitzira, then the produce itself is inherently not obligated in matnos in which case Rabbi Yosef Dov's whole idea would fall apart, because if someone makes it hefker at that point, it's still not exempt from matnos So we saw that the Chazon Ish also raised a question on this point, that if the produce is inherently obligated, how could it not be a valid kitzira? So Reb Moshe is saying the opposite. If it's not a valid kitzira, maybe that means that the produce itself is not considered obligated in matnos aniam. So that is a strong conceptual question on Rabbi Yosef Dov's analysis. Rabbi Yosef Dov is arguing something in the middle that the produce is inherently obligated, but the kitzira is not a valid kitzira. So therefore, there's no matnos for a technical reason, even though the produce would be obligated.